0: Think and it's probably true. We should, should we should probably always be doing that. But uh, I don't know if you're like me, but I'm kind of a creature of habit. Uh, some good habits, some not good habits. But it's nice to have a time in the year where you step back and you say again, what is God doing? What what is happening? What what is what has begun? What's in process? Where is it going? Um, what will the end be? And the Bible tells us that there is a great story that is going on that happened. At the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, and continued when Jesus came and gave his life and died. But it doesn't just end with that. It's not just that Christmas is a nice, well, Jesus was born, isn't that wonderful? It's a, it's a sense that God is about doing something exciting, amazing, that he is laying us in on, that he is telling us about. And so today, Jonathan read from one of those passages in Isaiah, which which is further back than Christ, but looks forward to what God's doing. But it's bigger than what God is doing through Jesus Christ, although it includes that. And I think sometimes, you know, uh, in the church, we we I mean, it's a, Jesus is the central part of what is happening, but it's not. He's not the only part of what God. Everything comes from and through and in, and will honor Jesus. But but God is doing huge and wonderful things in this world. And part of this passage at the beginning is Isaiah receiving a vision from God. And actually, the the version that I and Jonathan have is is good, but it kind of translates something so that you miss it. It it basically says something like this, The word of the Lord came to me, and I saw. It's, It's a strange kind of thing. God's word came, I heard, but that hearing was so powerful, so vivid, that it created an image. A picture in the mind of Isaiah, in which now he shares and he talks about. Have you ever had that happen to you? Have you ever heard a story, or maybe um, you, you've read something and you, it was, the author was so good with the words that you could actually picture, you know, that that place, that space in your imagination, and it became very real to you. Um, there's a there's a uh, one such story for me. Um, is is from Flannery O'Connor's story called Revelation. I don't know if you've ever read Flannery O'Connor. If not, you should. Um, uh, She's a a Catholic writer, American, uh, very powerful, very interesting. But she tells this story, and I'll give you briefly. Don't worry. uh, Not the whole story. I don't want to ruin it for you. But she talks about this story about it's in the Deep South and it's during a time where there's a lot of racism and this white woman walks in with her husband to the doctor. And there's some other people in the room. There's a a very well-dressed woman. There's uh, what... She calls white trash, which means a poorer white person, um, a girl with um, a young teenager with acne. And, and the woman starts to talk uh, with, the, with the more upright and uh, put-together woman, the richer woman, uh, about, uh, that, you know, about blacks and about, uh, and about uh, the poor white trash and all these things. And she's saying all these things out. She's incredibly rude in what she's doing. But she feels very upright about what she's saying. Of course, she knows the truth. And as this goes on, and you read the story, you start to cringe. You start to go, oh my, this is awful. This is wrong. And and this uh, teenager with the acne, who's kind of fat, gets up and throws her book at the woman, and jumps across the room and starts to strangle her. It's very powerful. And and uh, the, the groom slowly you know, pulls this, this girl off of this lady, and the lady's completely shaken and doesn't know what's going on, and can't believe that this has happened, and leaves, and And later that day, the scene picks up. She's in her garden, and she's talking to God because she's a very religious person. She goes to church all the time. And she's very angry with God, very angry. She did not deserve to be treated this way because of the things she's done in church and the way she's acted. And and you can just feel the self-righteousness of this woman. And then God gives her a vision. And it's a vision of of this trail going from earth to heaven. And it's the heavenly trail. And 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 in the vision the, 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 the blacks as they, you know, as she uses a much more derogatory term, but as the blacks are in the front and they're praising God and they're full of celebration and they're going but they're in front of her. And then there's the white trash the poor white people, and they're celebrating, and they're going in front of her, and and she's at the back of the... She, her people, her kind, they're at the back of the line. It's a vivid sense of, you think you're first, you think you're the best, you'll be last in the kingdom. But for me, that that is a vision, as I read that story, and as I heard that story, that image will never leave my mind, a sense of the reality that our righteousness here, our thoughts that we're so right, is so wrong in heaven. That's not the way it is. Isaiah wants to give us a vision like that. He, he has a vision that God's given. He wants us to have a vision that we don't forget about, we don't lose. And Advent is our time to step back and to listen again to that vision and to remember what God is doing and to live in harmony with it. This Sunday is about hope. It's about what God is doing and our looking to and living in light of that hope that is coming. And I just will tell you, my, my assessment of hope in, in general is this. For many people, and sometimes for us Christians, hope is something we don't think about at all, really from a, from a God's perspective. We don't think about the future, God's future. We might think about our future, our job, where I'll be on vacation, what I'll do what I'll drive, where the next place for me to move in my job, maybe what my kids will do. But our vision rarely goes beyond us and one or two more generations. And that's not really hope. Not as God says. Some of us, I think, really do embrace a biblical hope, a a sense of God's rule. His kingdom is coming. And at some point, we'll be here in fullness. And occasionally, when life gets hard, or if I get a moment on the beach and I get there's you know nothing going on, and I sit back and I think about things, or I'm reading my Bible, I might go, you know what? Won't that be a great day? But that hope is that biblical hope that we're supposed to focus on is only occasional. It doesn't happen very often. And we don't tend to reorient our life around it. But what Isaiah and the prophets, and Jesus, and the others in the Bible want us to do is something very different. is to see the vision of God, the vision that is coming, and let it control our attention. So that our eyes primarily are upon that vision, that reality of the future, and then as we get a sense of that future, we look ever so briefly at the reality around us, and say, how can I make my life in harmony with that coming future? And so we look to our life and then we look back up at that, at that heavenly vision. It, the, our eyes primarily are above on what God is doing and not what we're doing. Which vision determines the way we live? What we see or what God says? Isaiah had God's vision. Do we? I want to give you this, this sense of what the, the vision was about and then kind of try to explain a little bit of it to you. It's a short passage, but there's a lot in here. The vision is given to us really, in, if you want to take about three scenes, three pictures, or three, if you're into movies, three different scenes that, that happen uh, in this. The first is it gives us the image of a mountain among the hills. That mountain is God's temple, and it's almost as if, if you want to kind of visualize it, think about the north of Luxembourg, maybe around Decker's in that area. I don't know about you; I love that area. I love to drive up there and see the, the little the hills, you know, and and, and kind of the, the rolling hills. It's, it's like this: God is Isaiah is seeing the, the hills, and it's like that Mount Everest is amongst those hills. That that's the image. Is there's this this huge, amazing peak and mountain, and then there's these hills around it, and that peak and that mountain is God and His temple and where He is rightly worshiped. And the hills are really the other religions, the other gods that now are seen for what they are. In comparison, they're nothing. Isaiah says to the people of that day that one day every nation will see that God is great and exalted and superior and of far greater value than all of these other things that they pursued. That's the reality. One day that will happen. It is Israel's religion which is the true religion. It is Israel's God that is the true and only God. But I want you to note this. In their time, in their place, this was not the common view. The common view was this, is people weren't convinced that Israel's religion was superior. In fact, many Israelites would, would worship, go to the temple and worship, and they'd also have some other places and some other gods that they'd worship because they, like most of us, they want to hedge their bets. Well, what happens if my God's not right and maybe you know, this other god, Baal or whatever, you know, will, will, will be so I'll kind of I'll play both sides you know, in the end. And, and Isaiah says, one day what is true that God is like towering Everest over the small hills will be revealed. That He is greater by far. The next image is that this of people from every nation, and think of this not as Luxembourg, Belgium, um, and uh, you know France, but people from every tribe. Maybe it's better to think from an African perspective. Of you might have one nation and many, many tribes, many different cultures, many different language groups. All of these people coming. And calling to one another... It's, they're, not just go, they're not just going and, and, and speaking to They're calling to one another, Come, 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 let us go. Let us go so we can meet God, the God of Israel. Let us go so we can meet Him so that He can teach us. Because we need to learn what He has to say. And so that... Let us learn what He has to say so that we can walk in His will and His ways in this world. And when this happens... There will be this coming to God, but then there's an amazing shift. There's a going away to all the rest, presumably all the rest of the nations to teach and to tell what they have seen and what they have heard and what they have experienced. The last image is of a a radically different world. A world that really from the beginning has never been experienced by any of us. It's the image that God will be the one who mediates between the nations. That international disputes will be settled by God himself and by his purpose and his will. That people will take the weapons that they made, the millions and billions and billions, and trillions, that we put into weapons in our day, and they'll say these are of no use to us now. Can we make this into a hoe? Can we make this into a tractor? Can we make this into something that's useful because the weapons are of no use? There is no need any longer for these weapons of war. Three vivid images of God exalted over all the other so-called gods, of the nations coming to Jerusalem to encounter God, to learn and to follow, and of peace among the nations being demilitarized. No more war. What's the message? Okay, great. Three images. Thanks a lot, Paul. What's the message? What is is Isaiah trying to convey? What does he want them and what does he want us to walk away with? How does this fit with Advent? The first is this. Whether you agree with it or like it or not, God proclaims to us what is true. Is that he is the only God. He is exalted above other gods. You know, you and I, I don't think, would, would go and go to Everest and look at Everest and say, what a boastful mountain. can't believe that that mountain is exalting itself above all the other mountains. I mean, we would say, look at Everest. How high, how beautiful, how majestic, how amazing. Bigger than all the other hills and mountains in the world. And God is saying this, I will not lie to you. I will tell you what is true that I am exalted, and to lie to you is to hurt you. I am the only God. Sure, you can run after other gods, and sure, people make other gods, and, and of course, there are things in religions which are true, but there is one God, and I am Him. And to invite you and to tell you different is to harm you, and I will not do that to you. God does not excuse Himself for being great, he tells us that He is great, so that we might benefit from His greatness. The second image is critical for us to understand. You know, these aren't people that are just coming to a seminar on how to, how to you know, be a better person. You know, how to, how to work harder, how to get more money, how to get to the next place. These are people who are coming to be taught by God. They want to come and sit under God and say, teach us, help us to learn. We want to know your ways. Help us to understand your plans. How life is to be lived. God, what do you do? What's your part? God, what what is our part? How, How do we live in this world in a way that honors you and reflects you and lives with you? It's interesting. The Hebrew word to learn is the same, or to teach is the same word to learn. It means that when he says, if you teach, you teach such a way that people learn. They want to learn how to live, how to do. And if we haven't we're not doing then we haven't learned we can have a degree but we haven't learned because learning is all about actions the key to this image which I think is so challenging for us is this is if we do not leave and if they do not leave their own sense of self-sufficiency that I can take care of myself that all that I have and all that I really need I have within me or those close to me we will not go to God and learn. If we are full of ourselves, we will not leave and say, God, teach me. Help me to know what you want me to do. And yet these people from all nations of the world have realized they need God. And they have turned away from their own sense of, I can do it alone, to their sense of, I need God to learn to do it. And they have embraced God and His ways. And then they have committed themselves to walking in God's path, to living out life in a way that reflects what God says, what He's like. In a word, and to us, to be honest, an offensive word, but to them it's a joyful word, they submit themselves to God. Now, I don't know about you, but did the hair just go back on the top of your neck when I said submit? (laughs) You know? Sometimes for us, that word submit, it's a bit of a terrifying word. And yet for these people, submitting to God was a joy. It was a privilege. It was was an honor. Think about what we get for all of our independence and self-sufficiency. We get war. We get manipulative, manipulative religion. We get injustice. We get power conflicts of people trying to get above each other, and in the process, stabbing other people in the back. All of these things are exposed in Isaiah chapter 1, and, and Isaiah says, see, this is when you live differently than when God says, this is what happens, and this will destroy you. And this is why God is angry at the way that you live. But one day, Isaiah tells us, that world will fade, because people will know God, they will have learned from God and they will, they will have joy in walking in God's ways and doing what He wants. They will submit themselves to God. Not as robots, not out of fear, but in relationship and in love for God. Maybe the most unbelievable part of this third vision is that here is God solving all of the international political disputes. And our world is full of them, isn't it, Now? But God is the one who mediates those disputes. God is the one who makes things right. How is that possible? It's only possible when the nations will ultimately submit themselves to God. They won't do it, I don't think, because they're forced. They will do it because the splendor and the beauty and the nature of God will be seen for what it is. And they'll, they'll say this, I no longer have to supply my own needs because God promises to meet my needs I don't have to protect my people because God has promised that he will protect the people I don't have to judge how to meet my needs because God will take care of that and you know what when you and I are always thinking about myself and, and what I can do and how I need to get what I get you know what we all usually say well I need what I need and, and you need what you need too but it might be a little bit less than what I need but that's okay it's enough for you and then they go I don't like that you know I'm going to get some of yours, and next thing you know, what do you have? You have a conflict. You know, peace, peace in our world is what? It's short-lived, isn't it? And oftentimes it's superficial, right under the surface. is anger and bitterness and war. But that day will change. When the people of the world recognize God as the source of all good. That our needs and our destiny can be submitted to His wisdom and His judgment, and His ability to do all things well, when that day happens. And as people learn God's ways and learn to live in them, they'll be able to experience what the Bible calls the shalom of God, the peace. And that peace is physical, it's spiritual, it's relational, it's every part of of your soul being at rest. The tension goes away. Because I no longer have to protect myself or prove myself or provide for myself. The peace of God is there. And then we will joyfully submit our needs to God rather than trying to satisfy them ourselves by force. Why? Because we know He will do so, a such, so much better job than we ever could. And so we'll, we'll relax and submit. When will these principles be applied by the nations? When this happens, peace will prevail. We don't know when, but we know that day is coming. But until the nations come to God and are taught by Him and are walking in His, in His ways, that peace will not last. Is this just a dream? Is this just a nice kind of pie-in-the-sky story and say, well, that would be nice, but we're, come on, we're modern, realistic people. This, this won't happen. Can I suggest to you that's already been happening in small ways? It's not done. It's not here. But if you think about this passage, when Jesus came over 2,000 years ago, people came to him and he was God. And they learned and they listened and their lives were transformed. Not perfect, but transformed. And they lived as people who submitted themselves to God. And when they didn't, they confessed to God and when necessary to others. On the day of Pentecost, people from many nations heard and were taught about God's ways and were transformed. And since that day, the Word of God has been going out to all nations of the world. You see, the vision of Isaiah is coming true, but it just didn't pop up there and happen. It's slowly happening at the right time in the right way as God desires. Jesus' coming was a critical moment in God's vision Given to Isaiah to come true. But if we stop at the birth of Jesus and even at his death and resurrection, we miss so much more of what's going to come God being exalted, people streaming to hear, to listen, to know, to follow, to submit, and from warfare leaving us and peace coming. What do we do with this vision? Is it just a nice sermon we tuck away? Or maybe not so nice sermon we tuck away? Say, that's nice. But that's not my real life. Isaiah would say this, let it capture your heart. Let it grab you. Let it become what you see and what you live by. Because you know what? What you see and live by right now will fade away and fall apart and will be gone. But that reality is coming and it will stay forever. Forever. And if you base your life on that, you will not be sorry. If you base your life on other visions, other realities of the future, you will have sorrow and heartache that you don't need to have. You know, our eyes will always look where our heart longs to be, right? Our heart says, this is what I want, and our eyes go searching for it, and God says, here's a vision that will satisfy your heart. Even though there are lots of questions still left. Verse 5 has an interesting question at the end, an invitation. It says, Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the Lord. Let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let us walk in what God has revealed. This is His vision. He's revealed us. Let us live by it. But I, I, you have to notice, and, and I don't know if you catch this in the Bible, but you, you, you should know this sometimes. Whenever it mentions somebody's name like Jacob, you've got to go back and read about Jacob. You know who Jacob was? He was a deceptive son. He stole his brother's birthright. He 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 manipulated. He di- he didn't follow God, and yet through his life he had an encounter with God that changed him. And and guess what? The twelve tribes of Judah of of, of Israel what they're his twelve sons. Look what God did through a rebellious, manipulative. I don't want anything really to do with you, God, in your ways at least on the inside, externally, yes, but who encountered God and was changed. See, Jacob is an image of us and of them. We're Jacobs, aren't we? And God says to us, come, descendants of Jacob, manipulative, lost, broken, angry, not trusting, self-sufficient people, come to me and live in light of what I said. Come to me and learn. Walk in my ways, and you will have all that you need and far more. And when that future day comes, it will not be a shock to you because you have lived that future day. And as much sorrow that you have had because you walked in my ways when it wasn't popular, so much more will your joy be when that day of exaltation comes. God is inviting, He is doing something. A reality is coming to us. Come. Take it in. And let it transform you. For God's glory, yes, but also for your good and for the good of the nations. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, we come before you as people that so often have our hopes... On so many small and insignificant things. And yet they seem so important and so powerful and so, so important to us. Lord, we ask that you would help us to lift our eyes away from the things that we see around us and even those that we love so that we can look up and see the glory of who you are, see the future that will come, and see the peace the life that will come when that day is finished. Lord, help us today to live this way, to encourage one another to set our eyes above. And Lord, meet us so that we might know your peace, even in the midst of a world that is not yet right. Thank you that Jesus came and started this vision to come true. Help us to respond to you and submit so that that vision might continue.